Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. I'm your host, Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we are very lucky to have many jazz musicians and singers who have performed for most of their lives, and some right into their 90s. It's always amazing to hear their stories, and in this show, we will hear from several legends from previously recorded interviews and live-in-the-studio performances. We will learn about their start in the jazz scene, their challenges, and finally, their continued passion for this art form. Our musical guests are familiar to many, and we hope by the end of this broadcast, you will feel as though you will all know them better. I invite you to sit back and listen to our Minnesota jazz legends, James Cornbread Harris II, Miss Doris Hines, Percy Hughes, Cliff Brunzel, Jeannie Arland Peterson, Les Fields, Irv Williams, and Russ Moore, Kenny Horst, and Gary Berg. As we all know, timing is of the essence, and while preparing this show, we unfortunately lost a couple of our jazz legends. Since they were playing brilliantly into their 90s, we have kept them a part of this presentation. This show is brought to you by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and KBEM. Minnesota jazz legend James Cornbread Harris II joined us for a live in-studio concert. James Cornbread Harris. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I understand you didn't originally come from Minneapolis. You came through Chicago, is that right? Chicago, Chicago, Illinois. Did you come from a musical family, Cornbread? No. I didn't come from a musical family. Well, they what happened? Did a lightning bolt hit you and go, you're going to play music? or? Well, I don't know. That, that spaceship that dropped me off, I don't oh, know. I see. Likely story. Uh, yeah. So you so, found your way from Chicago to Minneapolis. Can you remember what year? Well, the, I have a very poor memory. I, I, I like not knowing stuff. <laughs> what, what about some of the clubs you may have played when you came to Minneapolis, uh-huh. can you remember some of those names? Did you? I don't know. Have you got a phone book? Oh. <laughs> Did you play mostly kind of blues kind of music? No. When you, when you first came up, what did you play? I played country western music. That was All my right. thing, man. I mean, if you get you any kind of a thing going, you got to branch out, you know? You got to go to St. Paul, or you got to go, oh. <laughs> Oh, that's where I am? No. So, you're in in Minneapolis. Play me a little uh, country. Just a little excerpt there. So I, but I, wait a minute, though. You you have this name about being into jazz and blues. When did that happen? Okay. I, I took my country songs uh, over on the Rondo Avenue, Selby Avenue, Grand Avenue, Concordia Avenue, and uh, they said, what in the heck are you doing? What kind of music is that? Really? Yeah, really. I said, well, well what kind of music? He said, come over here and listen to the jukebox. So I went over and listened to the jukebox, and, and they were saying stuff like, I get so tired. I can hardly stand up. Well, yeah, that's true. Get so tired, I can hardly stand up. I know that feeling. You know what? 
I know that feeling. You know the feeling? I do. Yeah, it makes you want to give it up. So, so I put that in my country songs and they said, you? hey, that's what we're talking about. I said, okay. So I'm playing the blues, right? So I get a bunch of people together and we played that. And uh, I started out tonight with something similar to that. The jazz people come along and said, why don't you put... Oh, yeah, okay. Why don't you put that in there? Uh, I said, okay, I'll do that. I said, what well, some of the ideas that this group has given me, two times through, come on with me. One of your segues into playing more jazz. More jazz, blues? yeah, more sure. jazz. Can you remember a club that you might have played? I know. Let's see, Nikki's Cafe. That was my big holdout thing. Okay, and yeah. Nikki's was located where? Second Street and First Avenue. And uh, I played down there many years. I think I got a hold of one or two of these guys that have been with me ever since. Oh, I did a place at the time on the lake called. Blowing pasta bar. <laughs> do you have a favorite place when you think back in your history? Do you have a favorite place you played or a favorite concert that you remember? I remember playing Upper Peninsula on the mountain. I remember playing Duluth Festival. A few years, I remember playing the State Fair at one of those little side places. I said, Have you got a phone book here? Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> Well, we can get some of those places because I know some of them. They're in a wonderful book through the Minnesota Historical Society as well, but it talks about jazz in the beginning. Do you remember when you came to the Twin Cities at all? What year? I can't recall what I read last night. Oh, you read stuff about me? I read stuff about you. Oh, no. Man. And Augie Garcia, right? Augie, oh, man. River Road Club, Mendota, River, Minnesota. There you go. Yeah, Riverboat Mendota. Club, Mendota. Oh, man. What? Five or six years we played three, four nights out there. We had to go through the Hall Brothers place up on the hill. Yes, I remember it. Uh, to the parking lot to get to where we played at. And you were there a long time. You packed the place, right? Yeah, we... we packed it. Yeah. Is well, that... it changed hands, so Augie and I and the rest of the group went up and down West 7th Street playing for the gangsters. Kit Can and the boys. That got to be really a nice thing. That was it. Did I mean you? You got hundred dollar tips and stuff. I know you have here. a couple of kids, and they were musical too, right? Oh, I have a child named Jimmy Jam. I don't know if everybody heard of him. Yeah, not oh, sure. Oh, you did. Okay, good. I'll tell him you applauded for his name being said. <laughs> uh, yeah. And how about, you have a daughter too, right? And did she was she equally as talented? One of my daughters was very talented. Sang in church. I got another daughter. She played in a play that I uh, played in. Interview with Paul Robeson. I was uh, Paul Robeson's piano player in mm. the play. 
And I did it with a fella named Paul, which was kind of funny, but uh, you know, <laughs> Paul Maybon, a singer, just extraordinary. I want to know what, uh, if you have some CDs that you've recorded, you don't have to have them with you. I, I want you to tell our listeners. I could have left them home. I just want you to brag about yourself. Brag? Only thing I got to brag about is how blessed I am. That's what I got to brag about. The talent that God gave me and that I get to use it to entertain people in the world. I am wondering if you would mind saying your age. Well, I'm trying to get to 88. April 23rd, I'll be 87. And then I'll be, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Well, never mind. Exactly, right? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, James Cornbread Harris II for some more music. Oh, they asked me, uh, how come you got the name Cornbread? That's right. I, w I was uh, called Huckleberry Finn before that. Yeah, I was. I went to uh, uh, a day camp, uh, Phyllis Wheatley, and I was running late. My, my grandparents by that time had taken me in because I lived in many foster homes in Detroit, Michigan, Colo Denver, Colorado, uh, where they make the cars, uh, that, that Detroit, okay. Uh, Omaha, Nebraska, I, yeah, I lived all over the place in different kind of homes. So I didn't get stuck with this, this is the way you're supposed to be raised, this is the way life is and that. I learned all kind of different ways, which is it's putting me in good stead right now, you know, because uh, I'm not trapped in a certain way of, you gotta do it this way, you gotta do it that way. So that's why I was able to get my country tunes into the blues, because I could change it over, see? And I'm telling you young folks, younger than me, don't get rigid. Always keep an open mind. I had a drummer that decided, uh, well, why don't you write some more songs, Cornbread? I said, well, what should I write? He said, I, I got the beginning of it. I said, what's the beginning? Put your earplugs in. Cornbread in the morning. Cornbread every night Cornbread in the forenoon I said, what kind of song is that? I said, well, let me, let, I'll add to the song. Everything will be all right. Said cornbread. 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 Love that good cornbread. Collard greens and cornbread. Chitlins and cornbread. Lobster tail and cornbread. Black eyed peas and cornbread. Oxtails and cornbread. Hog malls and cornbread. Turnip greens and cornbread. 
baked beans and cornbread. How many grits and cornbread? Big feet and cornbread. Pork chops and cornbread. Monkey hips and cornbread, baby, cornbread. Episcopalians like cornbread, Muslim people like cornbread, Milton folks like cornbread, Catholic people like cornbread, Methodists like cornbread, Seventh day like cornbread, Christian science like cornbread, Apostolic like cornbread, Beatniks like cornbread, Hip cats like cornbread. Buddhists like cornbread. Jewish folks like cornbread, baby, cornbread. 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 Scooby dooby dooby school you bob. Scooby dooby dooby school you bob. School you bob Cornbread Guitar play listening to Minnesota jazz legends, the elders. Our next Minnesota jazz legend is saxophonist and vocalist Percy Hughes. Percy was what they called a triple threat, being a musician, vocalist, and a great baseball player. School was uh, 
my beginning and my brother also a trumpet player and that got us rolling professional music travels with music kept me going that way oh yes I was in an army band and uh, that's where I really knew what I wanted because I was acknowledged you know pretty pretty solid and uh, I said well this is for me and it was easy because I was respected as a musician early so when you came out of the army did you have a decision to make whether you would well it was it was working for me where I could do both baseball especially because I was good at it and I was in demand so I stayed with baseball not knowing that I could make a future out of it but just enjoying it so much. I was a good baseball player. Were you here in the Twin Cities? Yes. I did some workouts with them. The Minneapolis Millers, Buzzy Arlett, oh gee. I was an infielder. I played uh, everything but first base. Shortstop, third base, second base. And I was good. It just came natural for me with Jackie Robinson. And he and I became very good friends. He knew I was good. And I, naturally, I knew he was good. Although he hadn't been given all the respect that early. He and I were about on the same level as far as respect. And were you playing in clubs at this point as well? Yes, I was. Can you name some of the clubs? Oh, they were local clubs. Treasure Inn, that was my home away from home. Was it now? That's when I really started being respected, I think. Treasure Inn. So, were, did you have a band at that point? or did I you had a band from day one, just about. I was popular, not realizing how popular I was until after a while. What was the clientele like in Treasure Inn? Music lovers. Dancers? Dan yes, definitely. That had to be fun. Everybody loved my music for dancing. How many pieces did you have in your orchestra? Oh, nine, ten pieces. And less sometimes. It depended on what the request was for. Were you uh, primarily hiring African-American musicians at that point, or was it a mixed group when you first started playing in the bands? Was that Black and white. easily accepted? Pretty much so, because of Percy Hughes. That was one thing I was very proud of because it's like I was able to get into the color scene. That was really 
my biggest ability or to me it was my biggest contribution maybe. okay so you had uh, vocals as well you're a vocalist yourself right yes and then you also had vocalists join yes, you through the years right Judy Perkins who I, I married pow just like that became popular Judy Perkins, once again, you're going to like this. You're like this to dance too, also watch it. Mac tonight. Oh, the shark has mm, pretty teeth here, and he shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has a Mackie's and he keeps it out of sight when the shark bites mm, with his teeth here scarlet billows start to spread fancy gloves uh, wears on my teeth so there's not a not a trace of red on the sidewalk Early Sunday morning lies a little body just oozing light. Well, someone's sneaking around the corner. Could that someone be old Max the Knife? Louis Miller, he disappeared, dear, after drawing up all his heart. called me a triple threat. I was a mailman, musician, I could play baseball, tennis, all that. But music, all of a sudden I know, hey, this is for me. I'm making good money and 
I really enjoyed music, and that's how I began to realize I enjoyed music because of the money coming in. Well, you're going to have me crying because I miss it. I will say that your contribution to the music world has already spoken for itself. Yeah. That's why I consider you one of the jazz legends here in our Twin Cities. I'll accept it because I think I was. Let's talk about some of the other places you played. Treasure Inn was a huge success for you for, what, many years? gosh. So when you were at the Flame, did you have a, your orchestra, several pieces? I had my own band there. Okay. I heard this, that sometimes the clientele included some mobsters. Oh yeah, some hoods. And they were in my corner, so I didn't have to worry about them because I know they liked me. and. So it worked out fine. But you knew who they were. Oh, yes. Oh, my. (laughs) Oh, gosh, yeah. Those guys were neat. They they treated me great. Kid Chan. Yeah? Yeah. And boy, he was protective. If anybody gonna bother you, let me know first. Music was good to me. Downtown, I can remember the hotels I played in. The Lemington, the Radisson, yes. Oh, the Point Supper Club. Let's talk about the Point Supper Club. You were famous. Was Carol Martin singing with you at that point? Carol was in there somewhere and uh, very popular. And we got along just perfect. Carol Martin, and was she ever popular? Do you think Lake Hammond was um, instrumental in helping you put your career on the map by doing live radio programs <coughs> of the band? Oh, I think so. Because I remember Lay so well. We were buddies. We, we uh, sort of hung around together. We gotta talk about Echoes of Ellington. Oh. And your pal, Red Wolf. Red Top! Oh, Red and I were, we were like relatives. of Ellington, that was, I gave it that name. One of the hotels, Lemington, Radisson, dawned on me, hey, that's a good name, you know. And so that's what I called me, myself. The band became more and more popular. relationship with Red Wolf 
created a day for you in your honor, and it was proclaimed by Governor Rudy Perpich. 50 years in the music business, and... We did a lot of things together. You were the very first African-American to be inducted into the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame, it said. I guess I was, wasn't yeah. I? I did not grow up with color. Life, you worked a lot with Irv Williams. Irv was my tenor sax man for uh, quite a while, and we got along well. When I was uh, the leader, he was my side man, but he wasn't a side man for long. I, you know, if you were to talk about. A highlight of music for you, what would be the first thing you'd say? Getting into the downtown clubs. I'll never forget my first job at the Radisson. And the Radisson was big time. And here comes this black guy getting with his band, getting a gig, a steady gig at the Radisson Hotel. I lasted a long time in there. Peggy Lee, I'll never forget her because I started her downtown. She was so nice. She wanted to go on a tour with me too. Yeah. And uh, back at that time, something told me, uh-uh, it ain't gonna work because she was white and I was black and there was still some of that, excuse me, crap going on. We were good friends and I, I told her I don't think it'll work, Peggy. I was very outspoken because I, I had the respect of most people. Another thing I was very proud of is the fact that I did things for the University of Minnesota. I was an instructor over there as a player helping students. So Reginald Buckner had, had you at the University of Minnesota and you were connected with the music department but specifically he liked it when you when you taught the kids what improvising Impro means. Yeah. As a musician and a leader, gave back not only to the community, but to our children. You yeah. taught them such an important part of jazz. I did, and I enjoyed it. I, uh, I liked it. How did you learn how to improvise? Doing it. 
Percy, I love you. Thank you. You are listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, the elders. Listening to the Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. I'm your host, Patty Peterson. We invited jazz legend Russ Moore to come and talk about his days in the music business as a drummer, a drum shop owner, and as an officer of the Twin Cities Musicians Union. His stories will wow you on the history of the jazz music scene in the 40s and up through the years. Russ is joined by Gary Berg and Kenny Horst. Well, I know you were with the Twin Cities Musicians Union, but long before that, you were playing jazz here in the Twin Cities. And I wondered if you could recall some of the clubs that were really popular as you were first starting out in your career. Well, I started in 1946. I started playing in Minneapolis. And uh, the clubs then were the Dome, which became Vic's, Vic Levine. And... uh, Sixth Avenue North, Howard Steakhouse, yeah, Mumbles. And there were still people on the street, <laughs> or in the paddy wagon. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you should be part of this conversation too, Gary. Yeah, yeah. and but there were uh, there was a lot of playing. I'll give you an idea. In 1946, seven, even then. There was music from 14th, which is Spruce Place, all the way down to Washington Avenue. There must have been 50 to 100 musicians, not maybe not 100, but 50, working six nights a week, seven nights a week on Hennepin Avenue. It was a different time, that's all. And today it's changed because that's what happens with time. WCCO had a house band, Jeannie Arlen, your mother was there, and you your father, yeah. Biddy Bastion. Right. Yeah. Frankie Roberts. Bob Bass was a marvelous drummer. Just great. And he couldn't cover all his dates in the daytime. And he'd have a show at night. And he'd send me to go mark the parts and do the rehearsals for him. I'd say, Bob, keep it up. <laughs> yeah. You didn't mind that, huh? No. And, and Vern Rooney was the conductor of all the vaudeville shows and things going on. He's a great conductor. He got used to me. He didn't wasn't happy to see me, but oh. right, in other right, words, you got a lot of work out of him. Oh, I made a living off Bob. Bass. Oh, that. Yeah. Well, that's pretty fun. And were you, when you think about all the configurations of music and musicians, uh, were you? It locked into one band that stands out in your mind. And in the one twin, location. In the twin cities? Just in the Twin Cities. I guess I worked with Jerry Mehron's big band off and on for... And, oh, Dick Whitbeck had a good band at the Diamond Lills back in the late 60s. And Tommy Talbert, I worked with Tommy Talbert a long time. Okay. And Tommy, yeah, he was national, but he was from Minneapolis. Wasn't there a club called the... Patio? El Patio. El Patio, okay. It's Culbertson's later on. Yes. It was uh, just west of 100 on Excelsior Boulevard. I think it's the site of Bunnies. Lester Young. Yeah, it's where Bunnies is. Lester Young played there. 
Lester Young played at Vicks on 5th and Hennepin. I was working down the street, and I was hoping we'd get out of here early, and I'd run up to Vicks to hear Lester. Yeah. Did Lester Young come from a family of musicians? Seems to me yes. that the family lived here for about 10 years. They lived north side, yeah. His father ran the band. and Okay. Well, he played drums first. Oh. But he didn't like packing up. <laughs> Did you catch that? <laughs> yeah. But uh, as far as playing, I mean, the Twin Cities was a smaller community. Okay, sure. Uh, now everybody's so spread out. We used to meet at the Parkway Hotel a lot of guys every day and eat lunch or breakfast. The Buckingham was the headquarters in the Parkway, and guys saw each other every day. Nobody worked days. Everybody played for a living, and you could make a living as meager as it was. I mean, don't, you're not going to retire on that money. Yeah. But that's okay. It changed. You're lucky you lived long enough to see the change. You know? The Moral Squad didn't help either. The Moral Squad. Who's the Moral Squad? Yeah. The Union? No. No, that's, they got another name for it now. Oh, oh. The Police Department. The Police Department. Okay. And, and you know what's funny? You know, as far as the Moral Squad, the Musicians Union in Minneapolis was at 32 Glenwood. It's third base, you know. The, the Moral Squad were, were up there. It stayed open. You go up there at four in the morning, you get a drink for a quarter. And uh, the Moral Squad was always there drinking, hanging out. Did you play other instruments in your life? No, I never have. No, so, drummer, how'd you get into it? My father was a motion picture operator, and he worked at the Orpheum. And bands used to come in. Benny Goodman, Cab Calloway, uh, Cootie Williams and the Ink Spots and Ella Fitzgerald was one package. So I'd go back and I got to know some of these people. Uh, Desi Arnaz had a band that worked, uh, came up out of the floor in the Radio City. Ninth and LaSalle. Radio City Theater was the biggest theater in Minneapolis. Yeah. The fanciest fancier than the Orpheum or the state or yeah. anything we have now. Really? Well, yeah. In fact, WCCO was right in it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Okay. That's the old home of WCCO TV. Where they had the fire and they lost a lot of the tapes and different things like that. Is that what you're talking uh, about? They couldn't start a flood. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's funny. But there was, there was a lot of work in the, I don't remember the 30s, but in the 40s there was a lot of work. I worked clubs sometimes for two to three years at a time, out of the Duffy's on 26 and 26. And who were you there with? I had the band for a couple of years. Ray Kamishki had it for a couple of years. Did you work with Gary there? Was that one Gary of subbed there? out there a lot. Okay. He was a child at the time. Huh? Happens. Well, you weren't very old. Were you old enough to get in? Uh, not at first. Right. <laughs> but that the nightclub, it was a different thing. Then. Uh, people danced. And the bands got away with playing any kind of music they wanted to, as long as the tempo was good for dancing. You know, now... Uh, Everybody knows the lyrics. You see, you see some obscure rock band 
singing a tune, and the audience is all singing, and, you know, amazing. Not dancing, they're just singing? They, they know the words and everything, you know. I never saw silence being sung while we were playing, hmm. no. It was a different era. All the clubs on Hennepin Avenue had bands. Yeah, and so oh, guys were working yeah. uh, six nights a week in yeah. uh, Hennepin Avenue clubs, but they all had strippers. I was going to say, that's some and of the stories I heard I about. tried to talk Kenny into getting strippers at the artist's quarter. <laughs> and and I, I thought, maybe he'd still be there. Because <laughs> the strippers packed them in. Do you want equal territory here? <laughs> it's there for you if you want it. And Charlie's Cafe Exceptional wasn't that where Peggy Lee did a lot of singing as well? Ch Peggy Lee was only yeah. in town with Sev Olson's orchestra at the Radisson Hotel, oh. 1940 or 41. Okay. She never uh, stayed here. Then they, she went with Sev, I think, some hotel in Chicago, and Benny Goodman heard her. And then that, that was... Yes, right. yes. And she auditioned for him, and that was Your the rest of his history. Your father worked with Peggy Lee with Sev Olson. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And every time Mom would get done with Charlie's, she'd walk into where they were playing together, and uh, Peggy would always sing, I Dream of Jeannie with a light brown hair to her. That's so sweet. And uh, Peggy actually needed... Um, it was time for her to move on for reasons you'll read about in a new book coming up, but you probably all know it. Um, there was a, a torrid affair going on, and, and she had an opportunity to audition in Chicago. And story goes, my dad lent her the money to go do it. And then she ended up with Benny Goodman. Yeah, the best playing time I had with Jeannie was when we'd, she'd do, we'd have a B3 organ and a guitar player, and we did that. And your mother was one of the only B3 people who played her feet correctly. Uh -huh. Most of them are stumbling down there, yeah. and the time goes out the, out the window. But your mother could right. keep time with her feet. Where did you play at for something like that? Because that I never heard her Sleepy talk about Eye, that much. Sleepy Eye, Minnesota. They Sleepy loved it. Sleepy Eye, Minnesota. I'm, I'm serious. There was a bowling alley that we used to work there, and she drove all the, which was nice. I didn't. Have to, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. B3 can be a dangerous instrument. You know. A dangerous instrument? Pardon? Dangerous. Dangerous. Oh, very. Oh, yeah. In the wrong hands or feet. Uh-huh. Uh. True. My mother could kick some mean B3. She, yes, she could. She could kick some. <laughs> Your mother and I also did a lot of industrial shows for did the you? old log. And we'd be in some town like Montreal. We went all over. If we'd be in some town, there'd be a band playing in the lounge. I'd say, Jeannie, why don't you go sit in? She, oh, no, no. And she'd sit in and knock the people out. Every time she played, it was better than the band that was there. My favorite thing was watching people's reaction to her. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They looked incredulous. Yeah, exactly. Was, that's a word, you know. Credulous. I do. It is tonight. Okay. I want to just honor you, though, and talk to you about you and your career. And um, uh, you were part of the, uh, uh, the Twin Cities Union also for a long time. 20 years. I'll tell you how that happened very briefly. I was working the Chan Hassan Theater. was there about five years. And the guys in the band say they didn't like the secretary treasurer for some reason. Doesn't make any difference. Why don't you run? Okay, I'll run. I got elected. 
My theory is they did that to get rid of me. <laughs> that, that, I think, no. I, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> Cornbread used to come visit me all the time. Oh, did he? Yep. You asked how I got to play drums? Yes. Before that, I played in high school band. It sounded awful, but I did a... Uh, uh, then the summer of 46, I got kind of serious about playing, and I got, so I could, I could do some things. And then there was a band called Joe Sanders, the old left-hander, Kansas City Nighthawks, was at the Lowry Hotel in St. Paul. His drummer was leaving, I got on the band. I'm 18 years old, all of a sudden I'm playing in Chicago, Boston, and uh, and after that, I went on different bands. Worked in a lot of ghost bands after that. Ghost band means what? Meaning that, that the leader died. That's one reason I don't play. <laughs> okay. Tex Benicky. I worked at Tex Benicky a lot. That was Glenn Miller. Uh, Buddy Morrow. worked with him a lot. That was Tommy Dorsey. Yeah. Peanuts Huckle. That was Benny Goodman. And I'd go out... Pardon? Jimmy Dorsey. Yeah, you worked with Jimmy Dorsey a long time. I would just work a week because they didn't have any work. But it was great to go out and play that music. You know, Got drafted in 1950. First day there, I was thinking, where's the band? Oh. Found out where it was. Within a week, I go over to the orderly room, go in and want to see how do I get in the band? But I walk in. And there's Don Simpson, a bass player who I had seen a year before in New York with Gene Krupa. He was with Gene Krupa for years. He got drafted. Well, he fell down when I walked in. Just went, oh, he laughed. Then I got in the Army band, and that was about it. Were you stationed elsewhere? Protected Fort Riley, Kansas. Not uh -huh. one godless commie showed up. There you go. Not, not one. <laughs> Got out of the Army and went to work at the Anglesey Cafe again with Jerry Hendrickson. We left there went to Duffy's with Ray Kamishki. Jimmy Hewitt was playing bass, one of the best bass players in the world. I had a drum shop on Lake and Hennepin from 63 to 70, early 70s, sometime in the 70s. Drumline. I hated it. I hated the retail business. And I didn't like people coming in and had a bang on everything. <laughs> I used to take Kenny to work with me. Uh, uh, strip club, because I, I wasn't old enough to drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> and he put me in the dressing room because I couldn't be, I couldn't be in the audience. And I was like, I would take a bus from St. Paul to the drum shop to take a drum lesson from Russ and I would usually stay there way after my lessons and there wasn't a bus running. And Russ says, well, I'll give you a ride home. However, you have to come to my gig and you were playing the first set or something for subbing for somebody and he put me in the dressing room and I'm like about 16 with all these naked girls. <laughs> I've never forgiven him. This is Russ Moore, everybody, and he has been in this scene forever, and I had to have him come and share some stories. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm your host, Patty Peterson, and you're listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders.
have the lovely Doris Hines with us to sing. And it's so beautiful because, um, and when I was reading the book that I had mentioned earlier, there was a lot of information about Doris in there and Cornbread and a lot of the wonderful um, jazz musicians that we have here in our Twin Cities. And we had and have celebrities that not only lived here, they remained here even if they traveled and opened for people or sang alongside them. And that's what Doris Hines did. And um, she had oh, the opportunities to sing with Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughn, Dinah Washington, Della Reese. Um, let me see, the Four Tops, really? Nat Cole, Nipsey Russell, Illinois Jacquette. Um, oh, you can tell me more. These are all great. And the history is on here of who she is. And we can get to that more in our story telling in just a moment. But with no further ado, I would like to introduce some new faces up here for the jazz legends, the elders. And uh, the new band is Mr. Kenny Horst on drums, everyone. And he will be included in our stories. And uh, on bass, this is Mr. Steve Pickall, who just came over here after another gig. And let me introduce you to my friend officially. This is Gary Hines, and he is the my leader. Baby. The leader of the Sounds of Blackness, the Grammy Award winning. And uh, joining Doris in just a moment or so is uh, Gary Berg on saxophone too, who has got some stories for us as well. We'll be probably getting to some of them a little later today, but um, definitely I want you to hear him. But with no further ado, this gorgeous woman is ready to sing for you. Please, a warm round of applause for Ms. Doris Hines. <laughs> got shall get them that's not shall lose so the Bible says and it still is news mama may have and papa may have but God bless the child that's got her own, that's got his own. Yes, the strong get more, while the weak ones fade. Empty pockets never make the grade. Mama may have, and Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got her own. That's got his own. 
Money, you got lots of friends Crowding round your door But listen, when the money's gone And the money is spent They don't come anymore Rich relations give Crust of bread and such And you can help yourself Watch out, don't take too much Mama may have Oh yeah, Papa may have But God bless the child That's got her own God bless the child That's got her own God bless the child That's got that's right. Thank you. Oh, baby. A flat, gentlemen. All flats today. D flat, A flat. Is he for you, baby? I can't hear anything. I think that means the start. Okay. Uh, Duke would play the intro like this. Cigarette holder. Howard wakes me over his shoulder. He really digs me. Outcatting that satin dog Baby, shall we go? Outcatting, look out amigo You're slapping, speaks Latin That satin dog Well, he's nobody's fool So I'm playing no fool can be and I'll give it a whirl so it ain't for no guy catching me epiduty telephone numbers you know doing those rumbas then you know all that and I sat down now he's no Nobody's fool, so I'm playing no fool, fool. I'm playing it cool as can be. I'm giving a whirl, but I ain't for no guy catching me. <laughs> Switcheroonie, telephone numbers. Well, you know, doing those rumbas. Well, you know.
only turned 90 November 27. 90 years. Doris, I want to talk a little bit about your career and what it was like for you. I want people, our listeners, to know what was it like in the beginning of your career? When I was 16 years old, I auditioned 17 times for Arthur Garfield's Talent Scout South. And the woman who used to pass you on whether you did or not, it was always, well, thank you, Ms. Hines. We, if we can use you on another show, we'll call you. We'll you. Well, you all remember Walter Winchell. Yeah. Right. Walter Winchell put it in his column that uh, Doris Hines had auditioned 17 times for the Orthography Talent Scouts. And on the 17th time, I'll never forget the woman's name if I go to hell. And uh, uh, she said, Miss Hines, put your hands together and hold the mic tight. And I, fine. And I thought I'm gonna get turned down again on the 17th time. She said, today is Thursday. Monday you'll be on the Orthography Talent Scout show. Wow. I went on and, and I wept. I wept. Did you weep? A good weep this time, right? And she won. Oh. Uh, Walter Winchell was big time, as you know. I think that's wonderful. I know that there was one really exceptional opportunity you got with Northwestern Bell. Weren't you the first African-American female vocalist featured in a national television commercial? Get out of town fast. Don't waste a sec. Get out of town fast. Die a long distance. <laughs> yeah. That shows you. That shows you how things passed. And, uh, you came here in 59 in Minneapolis for two weeks and got held over for six months. At, at the Sheraton Ritz Hotel, which was one of the swankiest hotels, as maybe some of you youngsters will remember. Yes. And uh, I was booked on a union contract for one month, and I was there for one year. And I loved it. The audience was just like you. Just like you. I sang and sang and sang. I'm going home to see my baby, big sweet baby of mine. It's been so long since I see baby, sometime I feel I'm lost. You've been listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, hosted and produced by Patty Peterson. Executive producer, Michelle Jansen. Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Scott Melchow at Creation Audio and Ricky Peterson at Workhouse Studios. Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, is funded by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This is a production of KBEM. All I do is dream about baby and ever-loving way. Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. I'm your host, Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we are very lucky to have many jazz musicians and singers who have performed for most of their lives, and some right into their 90s. It's always amazing to hear their stories, and in this show, we will hear from several legends from previously recorded interviews and live-in-the-studio performances. We will learn about their start in the jazz scene, their challenges, and finally, their continued passion for this art form. Our musical guests are familiar to many, and we hope by the end of this broadcast, you will feel as though you will all know them better. I invite you to sit back, 
and listen to our Minnesota jazz legends. This show is brought to you by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and KBEM. Well, it's time to move on into another uh, performer who is in the Twin Cities and in, well, actually in Rochester, too. And his name is Les Fields. He has uh, the Turkey River All-Stars. Les, thank you so much for being a part of our program. Thank you for coming in today. Thanks for asking me. Turkey River All-Stars has been around since when? Well, depends on how you describe it. We first used the name Turkey River All-Stars in 1968. But uh, I put together some little groups occasionally from 061 to 68. But when the name started. Well, you had uh, some music in your background growing up, and uh, you got into college and you had an opportunity to play in college. And what happened? Well, I went to Iowa University, and uh, my goal was to get in the band and try to get on the golf team. And I got in the band, even though I. I kind of messed up the audition, but in the marching band, they need a lot of bodies. So I got in the marching band in the uniform and a couple, three football games. Then they had tryouts for the golf team, and I managed to get out of that. They kept 12 guys, but I found out they both practiced at the same time. So I had to give up on it. That was very difficult. So I had to decide, but I picked golf. And At that point, were you jobbing around when we were, you were still living in Iowa, or did the uh, desire to play, and you play piccolo cornet currently, no, right? Or what? No, it's a, it's a pocket trumpet. It's actually a regular trumpet. It's just coiled up. It's just about half the length that it would ordinarily be, but it's a regular trumpet. They had one band man for the whole high school, junior high, grade school. And uh, the only lessons I had were the group lessons with five little cornet players, few lessons. He must have had a sense of humor because he got me to play a, a solo in front of the high school band. And the name of the tune was Organ Grinder Swing. Did you swing? Well, <laughs> I practiced, went home and practiced at noon and came back. And I said, you know, that starts out just like she'll be coming around the mountain. He said, oh, okay, well, Lester, come on, we got to go. So eight bar introduction by the band. And I played, she'll be coming around the mountain. Were you playing music at all when you first came to Rochester? Well, I played with a little band out of Independence called the Aristocrats. And then the Mayo Clinic had a big band, 22-piece band. They called the Notochords, which is a medical term, actually, but it sounds musical. It sure does. 18 doctors and four of us peasants. And I ended up playing that for about 20 years. Were you but, playing trumpet at the time? Yeah. Just, mm-hmm. But uh, <clears throat> they just practiced once a month and played somewhere once a month. For free, and that was about the early start in the early 60s. But it didn't really get going with the Turkey River All Stars probably till Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) I was having coffee with Ben DeWitt. We call him the godfather of the band now. He was with the First National Bank, and he was saying he was in a jam because he just found out at the morning Thursday meeting that he was supposed to line up the band for the Christmas party. 
two days away. And he couldn't find the band. They were all busy. So I just said, well, that's too bad. And then I got up to my office upstairs in the bank, and I thought, I bet I could round up some guys in a hurry. So I did. Called him back 20 minutes later, and I said, I got a, I think I got a band for you. And he said, well, good, what's the name of the band? I said, well, just, you don't have a name. He says, well, okay, but you got to let me know first thing in the morning what the name of the band's going to be, because i got to put it in the program. So then I remembered an old cardboard orchestra front I'd painted 18 years before that in Cresco, Iowa, when we put together a band and played for the country club party, which was on the Turkey River. And uh, I was going to have to use written music for that first job. The other guys just winged it. They were pros. And so I called Ben in the morning. I said, how to be for the Turkey River All-Stars? And he said, what? It sounds like a softball team. <laughs> but incidentally, about 30 years later, I learned there was a softball team in Cresco back in 1906. That was the birth that, that, of the Turkey River All-Stars. Yeah, I, mean, I guess you could call it that. And so today, the Turkey River All-Stars continue on, and you've gone through some personnel changes. Uh, you've had some people who have been inducted into the National Banjo Hall of Fame. You've uh, had some other awards and accolades, even yourself, right down to being inducted into the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame. And you have a story about that, too, because you don't like to do anything without mentioning your <laughs> band name, and uh, there was a little pushback well. on that. Yeah, a couple of people nominated me, but they called about 50 people, I think, that all wrote letters. And uh, and they all nominated to be, you know, Les Fields and the Turkey River All-Stars. And a year later, I get a letter saying that, that I'm being conducted. I called them up and I said, what happened to the band? You know, I said, there's no way I would be inducted. I wasn't even a music major. And the band is what made it, you know. They said, well, that's the way they usually do it. They said, you wouldn't find a six fat Dutchman in there. It would be Harold Laffemacher. I'd still like to have the, the band named. So they took it up at the next monthly meeting, and they said, no, that, that's the way we do it. Anyway. But what year nice was that? Anyway. That is very, very nice. And I, if, if you told me, right, um, it's not only your name, but you've got a picture of the band, too, at the Hall of Fame in New Elm. What year? 2007. Great. But Lowell Schreier, our banjo player from Mankato, he was inducted a couple of years before that to the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame and the National Banjo Hall of Fame. And then I, I mentioned uh, Lowell's daughter, Debbie, who we met her when she was seven. She started playing with us when she was 19. And uh, I'm not supposed to tell you how old she is now. Okay. Well, we but, want to ask. <laughs> anyway, she's going to be inducted into the National Banjo Hall of Fame this fall. It's congratulations yeah. to her and to you and Oklahoma. Oh, how fun. Yeah. So, um, when you think back on your career, uh, you've had a lot of highlights. Do you have one that sticks out in your mind? Well, it'd be hard to pick on our CD that played here. That lists, uh, you've got a lot of top, highlights. Top, I do know that. I mean, you've top, got the top ten, uh, like top David 10 Letterman here. We were lucky to make a connection with the Delta Queen, the Mississippi Queen. And we played uh, 30 cruises over a 25-year period between uh, St. Paul and Davenport. And we were the 
official Minnesota band at the 1984 World's Fair in New Orleans for a week. Oh, I gotta tell you a story. That might be a highlight right there. Okay, let's hear it. We were there for a week. We played two or three concerts a day. And we flew down on Northwest Airlines. And we took an 11-piece band. Everybody wanted to go. Piano, drums, tuba, clarinet, trombone, trumpet, four banjos, piano player, and a second drummer. And up at 30,000, Dr. Denny Robertson, banjo player, he says, do you think they'd care if I played my banjo? And I said, well, don't ask him. He says, why? I said, they'd probably say no. So he started playing. Pretty soon all four banjo players were playing. We all had our instruments, except the piano player and the drummer. We played on and off all the way to New Orleans. And when we got off, there was an English doctor right ahead of me saying goodbye to the pilot. And he says, I say it. Is this quite common in America? <laughs> that had to be so fun. And then uh, the last day there, we we had our own Bourbon Street Parade. That's a famous tune. And so all the 11 of us went down the street. We had to have a police escort to, to, to do it. To, really? To get permission. We had a, a, a patrol car in front of us and behind us. We went down about oh, six blocks of Bourbon Street. By the time we got... Where we were going, there was almost about 100 people following us. Oh my gosh. And we took him into a bar. We, we got acquainted with the bartender, so we did him a favor. Brought everybody in his bar. <laughs> yes, you did do him a favor, didn't you? That's wonderful. Let's fly down or drive down to New Orleans. That city, well, it is so pretty. Historic scenes. I'll take you and parade you down old Bourbon Street. You'll see all the hot spots and meet all the big shots down in New Orleans. Well, you know what? It said that you were the Minneapolis Aquatennial Jazz Band. You won something for them in 1972. There was a competition, apparently. Yeah, they had a, a band competition in different categories, you know, rock and old-time and western. I think they had about six Dixieland bands. And Doc Evans' band was in it. Oh, gosh, sure. But I think they had probably won it several times, and they weren't as fired up as we were, maybe. But anyway, we, we won that. That had to be our, exciting. Our saxophone player knew one of the three judges that probably didn't hurt either. I love that you also were invited to play for some of the president's visits. Well, that's right. When they came to Rochester area, we were the welcoming band for Nixon and, and Carter and George Bush, senior and junior, whatever you call them. Yeah. But the the, the most interesting ones, one was for uh, Carter. He came to uh, Wabashaw. Well, he, he came on the Delta Queen. He booked passage on the Delta Queen for a week. Did he? The boat had been trying to get a president on there for years, and they finally got him to come on. And it was a, it was a publicity coup, both for the boat and for him. They Very bumped, good. They, they bumped a hundred passengers and gave him trips later. The front two big cabins. One was the White House, and the other was his bedroom. They had this whole press corps and everything. They bumped 100 people. Oh, my goodness. But when they stopped at Wabasha, we were in the shore band. And 10,000 people 
light on the shore. Wow, pretty nice exposure there, Liz. And uh, Les Fields, my guest here, talking about the Turkey River All-Stars and what a wonderful career he's had as well. We're talking about some of the highlights that he has had. Uh, you also, um, you've been, you've done some work with Garrison Keeler. Well, they had, a, they had him come down and do a show at the Mayo Civic Auditorium once. They had a National Quit Smoking Day. He and Butch Thompson announced on his show that uh, they were going to quit smoking. You have taken the Turkey River All-Stars to several states for some of their jazz festivals, haven't you? Yeah, I think we've played about 25 jazz fests, some of them more times than one. You know, first one we played was at uh, the Big Spiderbeck Festival in Davenport. One of them stand out in your mind? One well, of the jazz festivals? Hmm. Well, that prob- probably that one. That was the biggest one and oh. the first one. I think it's a lot of bands. That's a good one down there. You don't necessarily find uh, the Turkey River All-Stars doing club work. You do more private parties and concerts, it looks like. One we did for nine years every Tuesday at the Hoffman House in Rochester back in the 70s and 80s. Actually, the first two years were at the Kaler. The way this happened, uh, they had hired a hotel consultant to advise them on everything, and he called me. He never heard the band. He says, we want to have a Dixieland band play once a week. You decide what time in one day. So we picked Tuesday, 5 to 7, I think it was, because I still wanted to be able to sell insurance after that. That lasted two years, but then they decided to make it into a disco. But we had such good crowds. I made a list of all the joints in town and decided Hoffman House looked the best because there's parking at the door. So we played there seven more years. You don't slow down. How often are you working now? Oh, I'd say maybe five or six times a month. But there was a time for many years where we well, we always had over 100 a year. I don't think I'd want to do that anymore. You've gotten inducted into the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame. You've gotten great accolades playing for presidents. You have musicians that have been inducted into National um, Banjo Hall of Fame. You've done so many wonderful things. But you're not done yet. What do you still want to accomplish in your career, <laughs> Les Fields? Well, I should probably practice and learn some more tunes. Other than that, just keep playing as long as people keep calling. All right, Les Fields, thank you so much. Thank you and goodbye, Les. Thanks for having me, Patty. Listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, the Elders. And now, jazz legend Irv Williams. 
All right, welcome to the show, Irv Williams. So uh, we're talking today about you and um, the fact that you're a jazz legend in our Twin Cities. You keep on working, playing, creating, recording. As I'm sitting here with you, there is sheet music on the table. You're getting ready for another recording session, yeah. right? Um, I've been playing um, professionally for at least 70 years. 70 years. Yeah, mm -hmm. professionally. Prior to that, I uh, played the fiddle. Uh, uh, my grandmother uh, loved the violin, so she wanted me to uh, play the fiddle, and she also wanted me to play the Indian flute, which oh. she is, which she was an Indian, and so uh, I used to play the Indian flute, uh, flute in 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 church. She had the large flute, and I had the little one, and uh, so that's how I got into music. Well, I have six so that's all. You have to play everything. Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was raised between Cincinnati, Ohio, and Little Rock, Arkansas. My mother died when I was uh, three or four years old, something like that. When she died in childbirth, and I was uh, uh, taken over by my grandmother. When and this, they told me this. My grandmother went in and, and looked at me and picked me up. She says, this baby isn't dead. What are you people doing? So she slapped me on the butt and I started crying. Got a saxophone and I, I kind of liked it. And uh, it was a C melody I paid 10 bucks for. It. So I was playing it up there. So I guess it's about time for me to get you uh, a good horn, so he got me a, another used horn. It was an alto this time, because I was too small to play the tenor. Then I played clarinet, also. So I knew from get-go that I was going to be a musician, but my dad was uh, determined that I would go to medical school. I wasn't about to be a doctor, and I'd see how much time he spent sick people and stuff like that, how tired he got. I took up the saxophone and the uh, clarinet in, in junior high school, and I, I've been playing ever since. I went to um, University of Arkansas, uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas. I tried to teach after I got the service, the uh, substitute teacher here, but I just couldn't make it. Were you able to be in music while you were in the service? Right here. Right All here. All the time, yeah. We had a band here. Navy bandless. Right in St. Paul. In St. Paul, okay. Yeah. We did all of the official band here. I didn't want to go here for, for nothing. I was in Pittsburgh uh, playing at uh, Crawford's Grill and I was playing with Mary Lou Williams, and uh, her husband at the time was a very good friend of mine, I got the gig. 
His name was uh, Harold Baker, who was uh, a member of the Duke Gallican Orchestra. And so I, I was working with them, and we were playing the Crawford Grill, which is on the main street of the kind of black district, you know, and everything. And uh, a couple of guys came up with blue suits and everything, and they showed me a, a badge to sell you a bridge. I said, yeah. He said, you got to get your butt back to um, St. Louis. He says, uh, you're going to be, be drafted. So then I came back to St. Louis. When I got there, uh, there was a guy named Lynn Bowden who had joined uh, the Navy for the purpose of re-entering uh, uh, guys as musicians in the Navy. They were cutting the Jim Crow out of the Navy, which was one of the most uh, Jim Crow uh, places you could find. Jim Crow is uh, prejudice. I got that way, I don't know, but that's the word. I was supposed to go to California, and the guy that was coming here was named Ballman. I didn't like him from the first get-go, you know. So I was trying to keep him hearing me play, because he was scouting around for somebody to come up here. Well, I was, every time I'd see him, I'd go hide someplace. But he heard me play, and right away he says, you're going up to me. Minnesota with me. I said, man, I don't go up, man. I said, ain't nothing up there, you know, nothing but snow and ice, you know. He says, well, you gonna go. I said, uh, well, I, what, what about the Navy promised me that I could go to California, you know? He says, well, I need somebody to go up there. I don't care about California. So that's how I got up here. I had been married and I had one kid that I hadn't seen because I was overseas at the time the kid was so I came back here, and right away I got a letter. He's a friend of mine, and he said that he, he, they had an opening in Billy Eckstein's band. So I, um, Billy was, was uh, playing in a ballroom that used to be a, a white ballroom, and, and blacks were moving out into St. Louis. So, so it was a, a black nightclub, beautiful nightclub. So Billy was playing there. He came up to me and he says, uh, are you out of the Navy? I said, no, because I had just gotten out that, that day. He says, well, uh, this is in the 50s. All right. Yeah. But I had to stay here with my wife and my kid and everything, so I stay here. Then I got a gig at um, Central High School Substitute Teaching, and I hated that. I didn't like it at all. So I went to the union, so I got in, and uh, no work. There was um, the Urban League. And so I, I had all these members of the band that had come in, to, and we call ourselves the ex-Navy band. Okay. So we're all together, and we were playing over in Ralston over there for on Saturdays and stuff like that. And we got all together. So um, I went down to uh, that club called Brass Rail, I think it's mm -hmm. something like that. Yes. And uh, I... We did an audition, he liked us, and so he says, but he says, I have to either hire uh, black or white, but I can't have it mixed. I said, what the hell's the mouth you, man? I said, this is the 25th century, as far as you're concerned, you know, what are you talking about? You know? So he said, well, uh, I don't want to say anymore. He says, but uh, I can't use you right now. So I went to the Urban League and signed Wardlow, Frank Wardlow was his name. So I told him what happened. He hit the ceiling. So we went to Sam Schreiner, Anti-Defamation League. Okay. Yeah. 
Were you a huge advocate for musicians in the workforce? Why, sure. I, I sure was. I, I wouldn't work below scale or anything like that. I, and I'm not a union kind of go-to-meeting kind of guy, you know, but I support the union 100%. I was working with uh, the George Hudson Band in St. Louis, and he had a contract to uh, uh, to accompany Ella on a tour. And you know how long the tour lasted? All during the war. Black Terry, and uh, I mean a heck of a band. That was a hard thing to do because Clark Terry and I went together and he managed to get out. But see, he got a blue discharge. Oh. And that goes with you all your life. <laughs> yeah, I got honorable discharge, you know. I always found a spot and sat down. Ah. I didn't have to. Somebody would hire me and I'd sit down and stay in play. I was at uh, a place that they had called um, Sherwood Forest oh. in St. Paul. I was there at that place for at least three years. We're talking St. Paul again. Did you have mm -hmm. a, a mainstay in Minneapolis as well? Oh yeah, the um, Cassius Bamboo Room uh, in downtown Minneapolis on 3rd Street. But he had a joint on 38th and 4th Avenue. And so we applied. He was the first black guy that got a, a liquor license. So I, when I came back from Eckstein, I just, I was with Billy about, uh, the first time I was with him for three months. The second time I was with him for almost a year. You know, I worked two jobs. I was, uh, I was up to Hilton from 62. Who was working with you there? Billy Wallace was the original guy up there at the top of the Hilton. But he left and he turned, I was with, I was working with him, so he turned the gig over to me. And so I was, I was just as happy, you know, because I knew I could make, make a, a, a good deal out of it. So I stayed there for eight, nine years. <laughs> I was working days. Dry, I was in a dry cleaning business. I was killing myself. So when the gig ended up there, I worked. Right after that, I went up just a block away from where they were, they were working. But I was there for two or three years. They had, we had um, Reginald. Reginald was working with me there when he died. Really? Yeah. yeah. You did some work at the University of Minnesota, too, with Reginald, didn't Quite you? Quite a bit. He had me uh, listen to them and, and make recommendations and things, because like, I'm a firm believer in scales. Before you start, trying to name chords, let's learn these skills.
Did you uh, receive awards in your day? I was the first one to get the Jazz Masters Award. I have, I've had so many highlights. I guess my greatest highlight was turning down Duke Ellington. Harold Baker, a good friend of mine in Duke's band, Johnny Hodges, they were at uh, STEM Hall, I think it was, playing there. And so I went down to see them. This was right after the war. And they all was pointing and everything, everything. So when they got off the stand, they all came down, come on, we're gonna see Duke. I said, for what? I said, we're gonna get you in the band. I said, no. Why? Why don't you? You'd be a great addition to this band. I said, man, I, I'm so scared right now. I just could not do it. So I turned it down. I stayed here and, and I made a life for myself. Earl you know? Williams, how old will you be on your next birthday? 95. 95 years 95, old. 95, yeah. I'm your host, Patty Peterson, and you're listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, the Elders. I'm your host, Patty Peterson. Our next jazz legend, Jeannie Arlen Peterson, pianist extraordinaire, is what the experts called a child prodigy. She began playing chords and melody at age three. Her musical career started at the age of 15 as a pianist and vocalist. She became a sensation nationally as well as locally. This eventually brought her to one of the largest radio stations in the country in Minneapolis, where she remained for 22 years. Jeannie Arland has achieved celebrity status in Minnesota. She won several Minnesota Music Awards for Best Pianist and was inducted into the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame as only the second woman after Judy Garland. Throughout her life, Jeannie had been recognized for her charitable contributions of time and talent. The governor of the state of Minnesota declared a day in her honor, and in 1997, Jeannie was the first woman to receive the prestigious Arts Midwest Jazz Masters Award for her excellence in jazz musicianship. Jeannie Arlen Peterson shared the stage and the recording studio with many celebrities over the years. Her playing and singing delighted the likes of Bob Hope, Perry Como, George Burns, Red Skelton, and Paul Whiteman. Paul Whiteman even invited her to do a special performance here in the Twin Cities at the Old Met Stadium. In addition, she has performed with and called Peggy Lee and Marion McPartland her friends. From jazz cruises to nightclubs and concerts, Jeannie wowed the jazz greats Sonny Stitt, Roy Eldridge, Bud Schenck, Toots Thielman, and George Benson. Donny Osmond always called her his Minnesota mom. In 1942, Jeannie married her soulmate, pianist Willie Peterson. They met while performing and continued their partnership throughout their lives together. Willie had a noted big band, which Jeannie often joined, and became a mainstay in nightclubs and recording sessions and radio. 
Jeannie released many CDs, and one in particular called My Calendar, which depicted the months of the year, received critical acclaim. Jeannie Arlen-Peterson continues to be an inspiration to her children and fellow musicians, even after her passing. She always won the hearts of everyone she met, and she was the quintessential ageless woman with a God-given talent which endured a lifetime. played since I was three. I could pick out melodies, and then I continued that and would listen to the radio, and I was able to learn from hearing. And of course, I had a, a family of musicians, and my brother would be playing, and my mother and dad, and I could pick it up. Mother played piano, my dad played wonderful ragtime piano, and sax and fiddle. to play country dances, and Donald was a wonderful sax player, trumpet and clarinet and flute, and he's the one who saw what talent I might have, I guess, and uh, that's how it got started. I was 15 when I started singing in a nightclub, and I had my parents' permission because Donald was on the band taking care of me. I had to go for an audition, and I truly wanted, and uh, there was one song I wanted to sing, and the piano player couldn't play it. I said, well, that's okay, I can play it. I guess that sort of surprised him that I could play. I was playing all the chords, but I didn't know what to call them. So I, that's what I learned, the names of the chords. And it was a pianist who was very good and worked with my brother Donald. And so uh, I, I learned the chords and a few licks. I played with my, the band my brother was in for Oh, goodness, a long time. And then I think that CCO, must, we must have had a remote uh, broadcast. And WCCO, a CBS outlet, must have heard us. And I went, they called me to come to radio. So I was on radio for 20 or 22 years as a singer and pianist. My kind of love, your kind of love, keeps me believing, although you're deceiving. My kind of love, one way to paradise. My kind I met my husband, Willie, in the business, and so uh, uh, we would play double piano sometimes, and I was the, the girl singer. <laughs> we had a good time. Although you're happy today, you may be gone. And then Willie uh, joined WCCO as well as pianist and organist. Willie Peterson is here with uh, his wife, Jeannie Arlen, and I'd like to have him talk a little bit about a tune that uh, you kids uh, cooked up. Uh, can you give me anything... What caused it? Was there an inspiration? Did you go on a picnic, or were you eating hot dogs? Or I had nothing to do with it. Willie wrote it for a musical production that oh. was presented at the university. I think. Yeah, it was called uh, Romney and Juliet. You and Jeannie play it? Gene and I are going to play organ and organ piano. Organ and piano. Romance as fresh as spring. And he was the first organist for the Twins Ball Club, and that began in 60 or 61. And he died at age 48 in 1969, and then I took over playing for the Twins for three years. And it was fun. And I'd take my little kids. I had five kids, you know, when he, he died and raised them, and they're all musicians. My one and only love It's my husband's favorite. 
Panini released many CDs, and one in particular called My Calendar, which depicted the months of the year, received critical acclaim. I did June is busting out all over for June, and I did My Funny Valentine, and I did a Spring is Here medley of two tunes for March, April, and Paris. No, I didn't do that. I, uh, I remember April, I believe. May, one morning, uh, busting out, June is busting all over, and at the Star Spangled Banner. Well, that was the most important song, I thought, for July. And I took liberties with it, I must say. I dared do it. <laughs> I'd like to do Body and Soul. It's one of my favorites. I have to say that Art Tatum was the first man I listened to who I thought was wonderful. That's my education, listening to the masters, you know. Oscar Peterson, I can't forget him. Bill Evans, God, he's so good. Jeannie Arlen Peterson's legacy lives on through her music and through her children and grandchildren. She has been called the mother of jazz music in Minnesota, and I think we can all agree. Jeannie, Wherever you are listening tonight, thank you for being one of our inspirational jazz legends and joining us on this very special show. Thanks, Mom. I loved every minute being with you. I'm your host, Patty Peterson, and you're listening to the Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. the Twin Cities Jazz Legends, and we're including Mr. Cliff Brunzel in this uh, segment because he was one of the reasons I wanted to start um, doing this featuring of our jazz elders. And when I say elders, it's the people who have um, studied so hard, they have lived life, they bring that wisdom into their surrounding communities. And when you talk about the musicians in town, it is just sheer joy that they bring to people. Well into his 90s, Cliff Brunzel continued to play. And joining me today are his daughters, Barbara and Julianne, and I wanted to say thank you, both of you, for coming in today. Pleasure, thank you, Patty. Pleasure to be here. Well, we are here to talk about the life of uh, Clifford Brunzel. Cliff Brunzel as my mother called him, Cliffy. He uh, was quite an influence in our Twin Cities. And he played music from a very young age until 
a few months before he passed away. Talk about how Cliff got his start. He was the youngest of three children, uh, born and raised in Minneapolis. His uh, uh, parents were immigrants from Sweden, uh, lived uh, kind of on the West Bank, the Seward neighborhood, and uh, kind of the golden boy of the three children because he was so young um, and had an affinity for music and started taking violin lessons at age eight, we think, and uh, was first uh, performing on a radio station at age 11. And he came from a very musical family. Um, His father played the piano for a living in the Oscar Danielson band, so dad grew up in a very musical and very talented family. Um, How did he get his first connection into being able to play at age 11 on radio? That I'm not sure of, to be honest with you, but uh, someone noticed him and got him to play a a little gig on the radio. But it wasn't until uh, in his teenage years in high school when he kind of got a band together, including uh, Carl Haney with the accordion. They actually got their first gig and, and begged to play even for free in South Bloomington. Um, in a bar. Oh my. At like age 16, 17. And what happened, they were so popular, people were coming out there, and this would mean 1938 maybe, mm-hmm. that the union came out oh. and, and did a shakedown and said to the owner of this bar, you need to get your boys to become members or this will not exist anymore. So all the boys went down and became members of the Musicians Union. And it stayed that way for ever, ever. 80 years, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Didn't he yes. um, go to college? Yes. Um, he went to the McPhail School of Music, and he got his undergrad degree there. And later on, he um, got his master's degree there as well. Then World War II came into play. For a while there, he was in the service. He started out in the Army Tank Corps and being a fine musician, if you will, and and in a tank it's loud as well, and he went to his superiors and kind of begged, you know, I I don't think I'm cut out for this job. Is there anything in the army orchestra that I could do? And they said, well, do you know how to play xylophone? And he said, "Uh, yeah, which he didn't. So he got into the orchestra and played there for a while before he went to the uh, pilot school in the Army Air Corps Mm -hmm. and became a B-25 pilot. So he came back to the Twin Cities out of the war, and was he able to reunite with some of his cohorts that he was performing with? Yeah, I think he he did, for sure, Carl Haney. I mean, they were together forever. Carl Haney also played at the Golden Strings uh, those many years later. Uh, There was a part of his life, too, where he went out to California to make it big. Oh, tell me about that. Yeah, he went out to California and would play in uh, little bars, I think, same thing. And um, <laughs> But yeah, he, he, he found out that it was not the life for him and came home. What came in 19, I think 1948-ish, uh, Minneapolis Symphony. And with that, when he auditioned, he didn't think he had a snowball's chance. And he got the call that, that uh, that uh, they wanted him, and he played, I think it was second violin, and I think he became chair of the second violin section. From that, again, more gigs and clubs, and eventually uh, the Golden Strings at the Radisson. Who founded the Golden Strings? He did, actually. 
He was hired by Kurt Carlson, um, who had seen strolling strings down in Mexico City, and he wanted to recreate it up here in the Twin Cities. So uh, Dad was, I'm not sure how they connected, but um, Dad was the leader, and he's the one who hired the musicians. So as we're talking about the Golden Strings, was he immediately invited to play at the Radisson downtown with the Golden Strings? Yes, and from that came 19 years. I mean, they they played three shows a night, uh, six days a week. Six days a week. Uh, Sunday was the only day off. This went on for 19 years, 5,000 shows, and it was all from memory, and they'd have rehearsals every month, you know. They did 11, 12 albums for Kurt Carlson, and the public loved them. It was a destination place. Yes. It was a destination place. A romantic destination place. People came to see the Golden Strings. It, and, and to this day, people remember the exact day the exact year when they went there to celebrate their birthday, their anniversary, whether they got engaged, uh, whatever the significant event was. He taught at Hopkins High School and created the orchestra out there. I think he was uh, in Hopkins for 15 years. He had the the youth orchestra. He was a founder of that. He taught privately. Uh, he had this connection with youth and knowing and listening. He was a good listener and he always wanted to know about you. When he came back from the war, he was in demand. And before the flame room existed at the Radisson, there was another flame room, correct? And what, what did they call it? What was the difference between the two? This was the flame club, the Flame Bar, on 15th and Nicollet, and it now is uh, the home to a business called Great Tapes, if you ever want to drive by it. It still has the, the, the ice block window that was there as part of the Flame uh, Club back in the 40s and 50s. Great Tapes today has pictures of the original Flame up hanging on the wall, and there was a, uh, two sections to this club. There was the front, which had a band and the back, which had a carousel dance floor. And that's still, that carousel flooring is still a part of this new business today. But back in the 40s and 50s, um, when Dad was playing there, his band would play the front part, and there would be another, more of a dance band in the back. And the flame was owned by a mobster, a gangster back then, by the name of Isidore Blumenfeld pretty famously known in the Twin Cities. Kid Can was his nickname. And the story goes that uh, whenever Kid Can would walk in with his two henchmen on either side, each wearing their trench coats, hands in the pocket kind of deal, and their fedora hats, as soon as they would walk in, Dad's band would stop playing whatever they were playing and play Kid Can's song. Which was? Jealousy. Jealousy. And I don't know why. But he would talk about going there on a Friday afternoon to get his little measly paycheck, and and uh, he'd go to the back door, and that back door is still there to this day. And then he, he witnessed some guy coming to the front door with a shotgun to hold up the place, to which the manager would step out and go right up to this guy with a shotgun and cold cock him with a fist under the chin and lifted him right up off his feet, according to Dad, and. You know, the manager saying, get out of here, and, you know, and the guy would run away. People who would come and go in these places, Sophie Tucker, Count Basie, um, of course, Kid Can, and 
Um, it was quite an era that I wished we'd known more about, actually. Cliff Frenzel continued his musical uh, profession his entire life, including taking the concept of the Golden Strings when it was no longer at the Flame Room at the Radisson, out into the public, hired for private parties, commercial events. Talk about how that was for him, because he ultimately became a booker, didn't he? Yes, he did. And he bought the name The Golden Strings from Kurt Carlson for a dollar. So he had rights to that name. And he did, he, he was a booker, he was the person who did the arranging of all the music. And he did that for many years, including going to the Mai Tai after the Flame Room closed down. So he was there for a few years. And then even up until the very end, up until December of 2013, Dad played under that name for various events private parties or whatever. In the fall of 2013, yeah. celebrating his uh, 50 years of the... F- of the flame room, of the of golden the strings, yes. Of the golden strings. Correct. Oh, okay, Correct. Oh, and its inception. What a beautiful thing to have him honored. Where was that located? That was at the American Swedish Institute, which, again, my father was very much connected to being Swedish, but also his father was um, one who who was part of the Oscar Danielson band uh, back in the 30s. And the American Swedish Institute actually has recordings of that band. And my father then would recreate the Oscar Danielson band every summer or so at the American Swedish Institute down to their actual original charts and everything. Talking about Cliff Brunzel, and he is a jazz legend here in the Twin Cities. And uh, we're just focusing on our wonderful um, jazz elders who have made it their life to continue in music. I know that he has had some awards throughout the years, too. He received two pretty big awards that he was very proud of, as were we. He won the Minnesota Music Award Jazz Violinist in 1991, which was huge. And then in in 2004, we all went down to New Ulm, New Ulm, yes, where he was inducted into the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame, and that was very special. And he continued on. He celebrated his birthday with a few cast members who were in his same age group, and yes, he, he put a band together once again. Every summer, he had a group of all-stars. You want to talk about that for a minute? That was at the Artist Quarter, and, and it included, of course, the uh, mother of all jazz pianists, your mother, of course. Uh, actually, my mother was uh, a few days older than your dad, and your dad did not let her forget that. <laughs> That's right. right. You usually, I left you wide open for a great line. Well, you usually <laughs> say that, yeah. Age is a number and mine is unlisted. All right, Cliff and Jeannie. Have you heard this song called Pennies from Heaven? It was just a fun show to be at, and... Well, I know for their big birthdays, for sure, and then I think they did 90 and 91. Um, and I'm not sure if Cliff uh, celebrated 92 with music or not. He did, seems to me, at the Old Log Theater. Right, and the Old Log Theater, that's a whole nother paragraph to talk about as yes, well. Yes, let's talk about it. Jeannie and Cliff and and Percy and Irv and Don Stoltz, bless his heart, the owner of the, the Old Log Theater, wanted to have this jazz all-stars in the summer every year, which she did. I don't know how many years it ran, maybe five, six years. 
He was the leader. He would run the pace of it, and he would tell the stories in between. And the timing, again, impeccable timing with his jokes. We've heard it a million times. But there's, they still made us laugh just as That's that, that never-ending hope and positivity that forced Dad through his life. Mm-hmm. Right, and joy. Yeah, and joy. And he, passion. He was a total businessman in terms of making sure he cared for his musicians so much and he loved his audiences. I would agree and add that jazz was really his primary love. He got his spark from the relationship between himself and the audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, even at Jack's Cafe in December, uh, just last December 2013, um, it was the last time the Golden Strings played together. They walked him in, and the audience, when they saw him come in, they stood up and clapped. Yeah. It wasn't at the end of the show, it was at the very beginning. And Dad nailed it. He was 92 and a half, and he died two months later. That's a beautiful story. Also, going back to the Flame Room at the Radisson again. And, yes. I mean, everyone has some, you know, if they didn't go there personally, their parents had. So they know they have some connection. And Barb and I have heard all the stories, but one that is, is uh, anybody who is anybody would go to the Flame Room for dinner. I'm talking politicians, sports figures, uh, uh, Hollywood types. The stop in Minneapolis was to have dinner at this fine dining, white linen tablecloths covered with these flame torches on the walls and stuff like that. And uh, again, anybody who was anybody would make a stop there for dinner. This one particular, uh, Mike the Maynard D, came up to Dad and said, um, uh, General Doolittle, uh, table 22. General Doolittle is a famous B-25 pilot from World War II. And of course that keyed into Dad being a B-25 as well. And uh, so at some point during the show, Dad made sure that the strings gathered around the General's table and and um, while the you know, strings were playing, Dad stopped, put his fiddle under his arm and stood at attention and saluted the General and said, from one B-25 pilot to another, I salute you. To which then the General pushed his chair up and away, and he stood up and saluted Dad back and said, from one B-25 pilot to another, I salute you. Dad would tell this story every summer up at our cabin, at the folks' cabin, on July 4th, every year, with the family gathered around the picnic table, and he'd read the Gettysburg, and he'd hold his flag, and he'd have his specs, and he'd uh, reminisce about veterans and tell this General Doolittle story, and we've heard it a million times, and there was ne- always a tearful moment when he would tell us that. Mm-hmm. He was an icon. And I feel absolutely positive that Dad was a blessed man and that he got to lead his life exactly the way he wanted I to. I agree. And when he couldn't anymore, that's when he left. Thank you. 
been listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, hosted and produced by Patty Peterson. Executive producer, Michelle Jansen. Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Scott Melchow at Creation Audio and Ricky Peterson at Workhouse Studios. Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, is funded by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This is a production of KBEM.